You're about to listen to an episode where we talk about hunting. So you might be interested in my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. To get it, go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. From this guide, you will learn how to get a deer hunting license, obtain a firearm certificate, and get permission to hunt deer on a chosen piece of land. Everything is explained in simple language and in easy-to-follow steps. Get my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. Simply go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. This is episode 147. Uh, Today we are going to talk about woodcock. And my guest and your guest is James O'Neill, who is in the final stages of finishing his research and his PhD dedicated to this uh, fantastic bird. I'm really not going to say much more about the episode itself, just not to be redundant uh, and not, you know, repeat twice what we already said in any episode. But one thing, though, that I will say now that you will hear in greater detail in the episode itself is uh, just a shout out to National Association of Regional Game Councils, uh, who not only uh, supported that project substantially, uh, financially and otherwise, but also really initiated this project. And, and I just want to recognize that, uh, that this is really what it should be. And this is really what we say so often, that hunting organizations are really the ones who are behind a lot of fantastic conservation action and research projects dedicated to conservation of uh, birds and animals and so on. So this is one of those examples. And, uh, and also shout, shout out to Dan Curley, who uh, mentioned uh, James to me many years ago in 2019 when we were recording podcasts about uh, NARGC. And yeah, four years later, uh, James is on a podcast and talking about Woodcock. So I'm going to leave you to enjoy this episode of the podcast. Just a reminder to subscribe to my newsletter if you haven't already. Um, the link is in the description of the show. So get in there and click on the link and subscribe to the newsletter. And in this newsletter, you will not only get notifications about the new episodes of the podcast, but also much more. Uh, you will have a, a priority access to my blogs and articles and some other information, for example, about live, live events. Speaking about which, there is one live event that is going on uh, in May. On the 27th of May, to be precise, it is called Environmental Debate Live and Unscripted. It's in Oxfordshire, or Oxfordshire. I'm not really sure how to pronounce that to this day. Uh, One way or another, I am on a panel discussion, and I am going to talk about two of the probably most controversial subjects in the entire internet, which is nutrition and meat consumption. The topic is whether we can still consume meat while having a animal welfare and environment at the forefront of our minds. I'm sure it's going to be fun. Uh, again, the link is in the description of the show, the link to Eventbrite. Uh, get in there now and get yourself tickets at the early bird price. Okay, so two actions for you today. Subscribe to the newsletter if you haven't already. Uh, the link is in the description of the show and there's like profile so you can have a look what you are will be getting roughly once every two weeks. And also if that's your thing and if you can travel to Oxfordshire and uh, meet me there, then by all means do it. It's going to be fun, I'm pretty sure. So that's it for this introduction. And now, ladies and gentlemen, James O'Neill and Woodcock. James, welcome to my show. Finally, we made. <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me on. It's uh, no any chance to talk about uh, the birds that I work with. Um, 
is uh, you know always a great pleasure. So <laughs> delighted. Very good. You know, I I looked at the uh, because this is you know we tried to make this podcast for some time, and I looked it up, and in 2019, I I uh, had on the episode 59 uh, Dan Curlew from NRRGC. Yeah, and he actually for the first time mentioned, you know, you should you should talk with uh, you, you know James O'Neill. He's doing this Woodcock research, and it would be great. And, and I think that I contacted you like a couple of weeks later, and we were just trying to do, make it happen and because it was 2018. So, you know, then all all the mayhem, and finally, and then we kind of like a run into each other on con- various conferences and things. You know, <laughs> stuff was happening, and it was like, yeah, we finally got to make it happen. Finally, got to make it happen. Uh, yeah, yeah. Listen, man. First off, I want to say that this is like a proper uh, way of doing podcasts because we we I just went out to your place and we hang out together, uh, had a dinner and it was great. And you showed me like actually what you're doing, like how you're catching and ringing woodcock. So yeah. we get to that. Uh, I just I just want to say that it was like a fantastic experience and, and thanks for that. Thanks for the invitation. It was like, very like the whole the whole evening. The whole yeah. evening was <laughs> just just superb, um, James. So. But for the benefits of our listeners, you know, maybe we start from introduction, you know, who you are, who you work for, and what is the research that you're doing, and then we take it from there. Yeah, okay. So um, at the moment, I'm a PhD student at University College Cork, uh, and my research centers on the woodcock, which is uh, yeah, a bird uh, that we have in Ireland, uh, and it's a very secretive, interesting bird to work on. Um, and I've been working on this PhD project now for four years, um, just over four years now. And we're just coming up to the end. I'm planning to submit my thesis uh, this coming summer. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> finally, it's been a long time coming, but no, it's been a fantastic project. Um, other than that, yeah, I'm just interested in nature, wildlife of all, all kinds, um, and you know, interested in conservation, how we can sustainably manage the Irish countryside to to benefit both you know the people and the wildlife. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, I, I, you know, like for listeners, you know, when I was at your at your home. You, it looks like a natural history museum. It's, it was it was just awesome. Like even if we haven't done anything and you haven't go out, it was worthy just to see all the specimens of the carnivorous plants and and all the mice and all the other things that you have. Uh, it, it's it's so you can tell you're the naturalist, like a true you know <laughs> true uh, naturalist. I've got far too many interests. Like, <laughs> they, I, I don't know what to spend my time doing because I just like far too many things, as you say. Uh, and yeah, <laughs> and I like to I surround, know, know, surround myself with all the things that I like. <laughs> yeah, I just like, I'm the same. I'm the same. Listen, so tell me, I don't know whether to ask you a question like, why Woodcock or maybe tell us something about woodcock so let let me you know combine these two questions into one so why woodcock and while you add it tell us uh a little bit about the woodcock what is special yeah. about these birds and everything that you you know people might need to know about woodcock because i presume there's a substantial portion of of uh, listeners who just you know kind of know there's a bird woodcock but doesn't know much detail about it yeah um well really just to introduce the woodcock then um, before I go on to why the woodcock I like to describe it for people who ask me you know what what's a woodcock like uh, they they've never heard of it they don't know of it at all um, I like to call it sort of a little small brown chicken with a big long beak um, but I don't think that quite does it justice because it is an absolutely fantastically beautiful bird. Uh, it's a member of the sandpiper family, which means that its closest relatives really are the curlews and the dunlins, the redshanks, the, the, the shorebirds that you see down on the beach and the mudflats. It's actually, you know, it would have shared a very recent common ancestor with those birds, but uh, rather than staying on the shoreline and uh, on the mudflats, like all of its relatives, it's actually moved inland to a uh, forest and farmland environment, uh, which means that it's kind of had to 
have some adaptations to its new lifestyle that many of its close relatives don't have. So, uh, for example, to camouflage itself in the forest environment, it has this incredible plumage. And I just I just described it as a small brown chicken. It's so much more than that. It has incredible patterning um, of brown and cream and russet and chestnut and black and and all these beautiful patterns across the feathers. And as I said, it's got a long beak, as you would expect from a bird in the sandpiper family, um, a very long straight beak. Uh, and then it's got sort of a little short tail that it likes to he- keep sort of cocked up in the air. Um, and then it's got a pair of very big, powerful wings that uh, that that are very, very strong. Um, but it's not a very big bird, and um, it's also a very, very secretive bird. So that coloration for its camouflage, um, when it's sitting in the forest, I mean, they have the technique of predator avoidance that uh, if they're approached by a predator, they just sit tight. They don't move. They just let their camouflage do the job for them. And um, you can nearly step on top of one of these birds before it finally flushes. And that's why I like to call them mini heart attacks as well, because <laughs> the shock of when a woodcock explodes out of the out of the leaf litter in front of you that you just never saw. Uh, and there's actually a lovely um, saying uh, about trying to find a woodcock that a wise man finds a woodcock by the glint of its eye, because that's basically the thing that stands out about it the most when you see it. So, I mean, that's just a basic description of the woodcock. There's a whole lot more um, that, you know, I, I could talk about in terms of its adaptations to its lifestyle, etc. Um, yeah, of course, of course, you're you're researching <laughs> those birds, so we we could probably record like a six hour yes. long podcast about only starting talking about woodcock. But just yeah. you know, just just to set things like, so I presume they moved into the uh, kind of like a woodland environment to avoid uh, competition with other other birds of its family. Yeah, that's probably a pretty good. Um, hypothesis as to why they did that because you know the the beaches the shorelines have got plenty of these long-legged long-beaked birds that are proving for uh creatures in in the mud but the forest doesn't have a long-legged long-beaked bird um and so the woodcock basically moved in to fill that niche um it, it kind of like uh, the there's only the best sort of an, uh, analogy uh uh of a bird um, to the woodcock is the kiwi in New Zealand, which has a very similar yes. lifestyle, except they can't fly, of course. Yeah, wow. Yeah, that's a, that's actually very. Now, when you said it, that's a that's a very good uh, comparison. So, so why woodcock? Why did you like? It did, yeah, just why woodcock? Why did you decide to do your PhD on woodcock? Woodcock. So I suppose, like most people growing up, I mean, I was mad into birds growing up through my teens, birds, insects, all kinds of wildlife, whatever. Um, but I, I just wasn't all that familiar with the woodcock. As I say, like most people are not familiar with the woodcock. Uh, and I, I, I can remember the first time I ever saw a woodcock and it was down in a little belt of, of trees just in a wet hollow uh, near my home where I grew up in, in Northern Ireland, uh, near to Loch Ness. And I, it just it just exploded out of the undergrowth, like I described, giving me a mini heart attack. And I just saw this ginger backside basically weaving through the trees and away. And uh, I went to my dad and I said, I, I think I just saw a woodcock. Uh, and, you know, um, he said, well, sounds like it, that that would be <laughs> that would fit the description. All right. Um, but. For a while, again, that remained pretty much my only experience of a, of a woodcock, because um, I just I just didn't know anything about how to see this species. And then um, when it came to my uh, the start of my bachelor's degree, twenty fifteen or so, um, I began bird ringing, uh, just because it was almost like a, a, a very natural thing for me to progress into with my interest and uh, in, in birds and science and, and, and whatever. And, um, you know, there's quite a lot of specialized uh, techniques to catching birds. 
um, mist nets and and um, and uh, you know there's a lot of uh, regulation and permits needed. Uh, so first of all, to ca- to be able to catch birds and to to tag them, to ring them, and then on top of that, to be able to um, use various methods and to be able to prove that you know how to safely catch and release uh, these birds. Um, however. I was in contact, or or I, I I spent a summer working in Romania actually um, with a, a friend of mine um, from Mid Wales, and he actually specialised in catching birds at night time uh, on the fields with a hand net and a torch, and this didn't require any kind of extra licensing or or permits or training, um, and so it was a very easy sort of method that I could get into. So he described this to me and he told me all the sort of different sorts of birds that he would find and catch, not the sort of birds that most people who do bird ringing in the daytime would, would encounter. Um, and, and I thought this sounded absolutely fantastic. So um, as part of my training, then I, I began sort of uh, getting out into my local fields, basically down where I'd seen that very first woodcock. Um, uh, and I actually found that the fields around my home were absolutely full of woodcock, but you would never see them unless you were out at night with a torch. Um, and and my mind was blown. So that's how I really how I begun. Um, well, my woodcock journey really. Um, it's it started with the ringing in a way, but I just very quickly became amazed by. The bird itself, and and the fact that so few people do know this species, you know, I was able to then begin to show other people, and and I was able to get other people enthused about this bird, um, and so uh, that's that's really where it began, and so then that that transitioned into into the current PhD project where um, there was a, a there was a previous project going on. Uh, with UCC and and Woodcock, which was um, set up uh, 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 by the NARGC uh, and the um, uh, and some other folks and and one of my colleagues at UCC as well, um, Luke Harmon, he was um, instrumental in getting that project set up. But the uh, the researcher who was originally started doing that project, um, they they unfortunately dropped out of the project. Um, and that sort of left the project hanging a bit. So I finished my bachelor's degree a few years later. I'd already, you know, every winter I was out catching a certain number of woodcocks. So I'd already got quite good at the technique of catching and, and, and getting to know the bird already. So I, 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 I'd I heard about this project um, at UCC. And so I I got in contact with, uh, with the relevant people. And, and, uh, and so we... Um, we applied for more funding and we got the and we got the project going again um which is great uh and so uh that <laughs> uh, the rest is history we we uh uh got going with the with the next four years of woodcock research in ireland this is a fantastic story and uh we go we're going to touch on the on the uh role of nnrgc as well uh, in this project because the, after all this is how i got in touch with you this is where i heard for the first time uh, about your project and what you do, you know, I have a, a suspicion that I would hear about you anyway. Uh, <laughs> but that was that was the first that was the first thing. Listen, man, I just want to focus for a second, uh, or maybe longer than a second, for on the technique of catching that bird because you you showed me how you do this, and and I was absolutely blown away. So you know, you were you were doing your thing, and I was kind of like a trailing in in, in your uh, in your wake, just just watching what you do. And you know, like woodcock is a game bird, right? So, so it, it it is it is huntable bird for those who who you know don't like the euphemism or whatever. So anyway, my point is that what you do is like so much more fun and so <laughs> much more exciting way of catching woodcock than shooting it. That I you know like. Coming from a hunter perspective, you know why would anyone want to shoot them if you if you can do the, if you can do what you do? And like you said, and you you know we can do catch and release, of course, 
and you can you can contribute to science by ringing them, measuring them, weighing them. You know, when you were when when we were sitting at night on the on the on the you know uh, on the edge of the field, and you were showing me, you know, you measure you measure beak length and the wing length and this and that. So you know, it always reminds me like my my shark fishing, where you know, like a part of this was like, oh, you can now measure that shark and target and all these things. So I kind of like was completely on the same page. Like I I get it, I get it. Um, so you know, like maybe talk us through. Uh, the the whole process of of you know like how you how you go about catching them and then once you once the bird is caught you know all the steps that are measuring weighing and all these things and and then what is happening with the data afterwards yep of course uh well just really to to start off about talking about the value of why i'm doing this i'm not just going out and catching woodcock for the fun of it although i have to say I really do find it a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's, um, as you say, the woodcock is a hunted species and we can really never know enough about the species, uh, for example, that we do hunt um, because we always need to sort of keep tabs on how those species are doing and gather more information, more th- information and bringing has traditionally always been a very important way of doing that. So basically we are putting, uh, you know, little metal rings on the bird's legs. Each ring has got a unique uh, inscription on uh, on the ring. And so anyone who ever in the future is able to um, recover that bird or if they hunt it or you know, it's hit in the road or it flies into the, a window or someone finds it dead under a peregrine roost, um, they're able to report that number to the centralized uh, uh, organization, your ring or the BTO, and um, that then is traced back to where I originally ringed that bird. And so we can tell all sorts of things from that uh, movement, for example, migratory paths, um, uh, longevity, longevity, how long they live for, and um, you know how uh, loyal a bird is to its wintering or breeding site as well, uh, from year to year, etc. Things like that, um, and and you know with enough birds ringed over the years, um, some very amazing uh, uh, overall pictures have been produced. There's a website that you can um, visit. Uh, I forget the exact name of it at the moment, but you can type in the name of any bird species really, and it'll give you the locations of all recoveries um, and and where they were recovered in relation to where they were ringed. And you can see just these incredible patterns about um, showing sort of where birds from Scandinavia are migrating to, where birds are migrating to from Russia, etc. So um, it just gives an, a, a, an amazing picture of what's happening with these birds over the years. Uh, on top of that, we can record things like ratios of adults to juveniles uh, and, and um, keep track of that each year as well. The method of catching them, uh, yes, as you say, it's a, it's a bit of a skill that you have to master. It, I probably made it look quite easy on the night that we were out and... I no, actually... like anyone who has who has any you know any sort of experience with wildlife <laughs> knew straight away that you're displaying serious skill, you know. So yeah, yeah. But you know, maybe like someone who just like see the bird for the first time, like, oh, you know, just, just. But yeah, man. We 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 actually went um trying to catch them at halfway through March, so March fifteenth, I think it was about. And at this time, the woodcock are actually getting ready to migrate. Uh, to the east, uh, the woodcock that overwinter here in Ireland, they migrate to breed in Scandinavia or Russia. And uh, they have, um, at this time of year, uh, what they call, uh, uh, the German word is Zugunruhe, which is no uh, literal translation in, in English. Um, and that basically means that they they're jumpy, they're energetic, they're ready to go, they're, they they can't sit still. And so at this time of year, it is actually really quite difficult to catch them. But the birds behave very well in the night we were out. Um, but basically, as I said, uh, we use a very bright torch and a hand net. So basically, like a landing net that an angler would use. The the technique is called 
lumping or dazzling. Now, it doesn't actually dazzle the bird. Um, and so I don't really like that name because the bird can clearly still see and it isn't blinded. It's not dazzled by the light. But what I like to say is that as I'm shining the torch at the bird, I, I initially find the bird using its eye shine and, and the reflectivity or you're using a thermal imager, um, uh, uh, which is quite helpful in some environments. Um, and when I shine the torch in the bird, I basically like to think that I'm hiding behind the light. It's, uh, it's you know, it, the bird can't see the shape of, of me behind the light. And so um, the bird can't see me, essentially, but it can still hear me. So I might be 100 meters away when I get the light onto the bird. Um, but I have to get close enough to the bird to be able to pop the net over it. So... <laughs> the long stalk commences and I have to be absolutely silent, which is a problem in these wet, muddy, squelchy fields. One wrong move with the boot and, you know, you'll make a big squelch and the mud will splatter everywhere. Uh, or you'll walk on a twig and or a crackling leaf and away the bird goes. So uh, you have to be very soft with your feet and... Um, a lot of it is about reading the bird's behavior. So a lot of the birds um, will do different things. I've kind of got to get different names for them. You've got the runners, the hoppers, the the sit stillers. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, you never know quite. These are all scientific terms. <laughs> the hoppers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very scientific. Um, and, uh, yeah, you basically have to... Um, act differently to each bird and you have to read the bird's behavior and how you have to act um, in relation to that. So if the bird starts moving, I can move at the same time as it's moving when it's walking across the ground. But if it stops, I have to stop too. And so, you know, it's just knowing the bird and how to, how to get close to it. But eventually, basically, you're getting closer and closer to it. And the closer you get to it, the uh, quieter you have to get. <laughs> um, because when you're right up close to it, it'll it'll startle at the very very tiniest movement, and then finally, I uh, I'm close enough to within striking distance, as it were, and I'm able to gently bring the net over the top of the bird, and gently drop it on the bird, and it's caught at that stage. And so, yeah, then afterwards, I you know I minimize handling time, I. Uh, just to minimize the stress, obviously, um, because the welfare, welfare of the bird is very, very important. Uh, I attach the ring. I take the measurements that I need to. So things like the weight and the wing length and the bill measurement, the head length, um, uh, the tail measurement as well. Uh, and then record it as an adult or a juvenile. And then finally release it into the night. And uh, yes, as you say, um, it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of uh, sort of, as well as the important sort of scientific value of what we're doing. Um, there's a, <laughs> there's a lot of fun in actually sort of thrill of the hunt, as it were. Um, but the nice thing is that I'm able to see the bird fly away by the end of it, and so maybe the next year I'll be able to catch that bird again, or somebody in Russia might uh, shoot that bird and let me know that they've actually shot that bird and then I get to know where this particular bird flew thousands and thousands of miles away uh, to nest. Um, and so that's, that's, that's a particularly uh, engaging part of it as well, is, is not just the act, but the follow-up on, on, um, on what you get back from that. Can you just tell us a few words about the migration of the birds, because I didn't th didn't think we we touched on this. So this is migratory bird, and there there is a lot of discussion about as well uh, that we touch on later about uh, management of the, these birds, particularly in the UK, I think, uh, because there are migratory populations and uh, local. Can you can you elaborate a little bit on this? Yeah. So as you said, um, basically in Ireland we have two main populations of woodcock there's the migratory population 
which comes here only for the winter. So these are breeding across a huge range of Eurasia. Um, the, the total breeding range of the woodcock actually stretches from um, Atlantic islands, such as the Canary Islands um, and Madeira, which have a very strange and interesting little breeding population of woodcock on them. Um, and then northern Spain and Ireland on the very eastern reaches right across Eurasia to the Pacific coast of uh, Russia. And so it's a very numerous bird and uh, occupies a, a huge area in the breeding season. But come the winter, um, obviously most of Siberia and Scandinavia and northern Russia is not suitable um, for these birds because they can't deal with frozen weather. Uh, it just makes the ground too hard for them to be able to probe in the soil for worms. So they have to find milder climates. So they fan out in all directions um, on their migration. And an awful lot of birds uh, would come to Ireland, uh, basically, because we're warm and we're wet and we have lots and lots of farmers' fields with lots and lots of worms. Um, so we get huge numbers of woodcock into Ireland. And... Um, we don't actually know really how many there are, but we do know that there are a lot of them, even though people rarely see them. <laughs> and that's just testament to how secretive they are. Um, so that's the migratory population. And then in Ireland, we do have a breeding population as well, which is a topic of my research, um, uh, trying to find out a little more about the status of how these birds are uh, doing in Ireland. And... Um, they would breed in mainly the Midlands areas. So the Midlands bogs and then north up to sort of uh, Monaghan and Fermanagh and a little bit of Donegal and then southwards to um, Waterford, Kilkenny, uh, some in Wexford and then uh, sort of all areas in between. But they're quite noticeably absent from most of the West. So West Cork and Kerry wouldn't have breeding woodcock, even though there's a lot of actually quite suitable habitat with all the afforestation that's been going on. Yeah, and, and so just to comment on their migratory strategy, they don't actually migrate at all. They are resident in the same, as far as we know, they're resident in the same area their whole entire lives. So in the winter, then in Ireland, we have a mixture of breeding, native breeding birds and migratory woodcock from the east. So I got to ask you this question um, because there's a lot of uh, debate over, you know, hunting uh, local versus uh, migra migrant populations and uh, discussion about the different conservation status of one versus other. So as a woodcock expert, like is the person who knows the land, um, you know, sort of this is their land, their walk, their life, are they able to tell migrant from local individual woodcock if you have a specimen of a woodcock in your hand you would not be able to tell the difference between a local one and a migrant one they are for all intents and purposes indistinguishable now you can maybe make inferences based on whether you know that there are uh, resident birds in the area during the breeding season but you, could, you couldn't say with any confidence whether a bird that is just flushed, for example, or that has been shot and you have in your hand is a resident or migrant. It, it, uh, I, okay. I certainly... So even, <laughs> even, even not based on, on their location. So like, oh, you know, in this area of the farm, there are only resident woodcock. No, because you can never be no. confident that there won't be migrant birds mixed in there. So let's approach it from different. So are you able to say like, oh, these are only migrants because there were never local uh, resident birds there? You could to some extent. For example, in West Cork, uh, where I am now, um, we don't have any breeding birds um, to speak of. Uh, there might be some on the Barrow Peninsula. Um, but other than that, West Cork is pretty... Um, uh, uh, or I should say breeding birds are pretty absent in West Cork. So obviously any bird that is here in the wintertime has to have migrated from somewhere. Now, uh, there exists then the question, well, could that have migrated from 
Russia? Or is it maybe an Irish bird that's doing a bit of moving about, say, in response to cold weather, which we know that they do? Um, for example, if it's very, very cold in the Midlands, uh, some of the resident birds will have to make cold weather movements um, to the west um, to to, to make, take advantage of the warmer weather. So you still can't say with any confidence whether it's a true migrant or 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 an Irish bird. Yeah, I gotcha, gotcha. So so it's migrant, but you don't know how far it migrated. Yes. It migrated <laughs> from a county. Yes. And that's, that's, that clarifies a lot. That clarifies a lot. Is there any indication or any chance that those migratory birds will stop migrating if they have you know with the climate change like you said they migrate because uh in russia and siberia just is too cold for them but is there you know are there any indications that as the climate warms they may stop migration and just become resident wherever they are that's a very good question and it is my suspicion that that is what we might begin to see <clears throat> Because they come to Ireland because they like the mild, wet uh, conditions that we have, which are good for 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 finding food. But um, actually, it was the year of 2021, autumn 2021, that I noticed some interesting things going on. So there's a network of, of woodcock ringers all across Europe. Uh, and in particular interest was um, was the uh, was the news coming out of Estonia that year uh, that there were fantastic numbers of juveniles um, in the country uh, coming through on migration, um, which indicated a you know a good breeding year. And yet in West Cork, numbers of juveniles were way down. We were catching in December. Uh, for tagging and numbers of juveniles were way way down so you know we were we were wondering well, what's going on here and so it turns out that it was very very mild on the coasts of um, Scandinavia that year and there were far more woodcocks staying over in Norway on the coast of Norway and Sweden um, rather than flying across the North Sea why why would you cry, uh, fly across the North Sea if you don't have to, um, it's it's very energetically demanding, um, uh, and the you know all the birds that we were catching in West Cork, these were all adults, and this was we think coming about because adults are very very loyal to their wintering grounds. So where they where they spend their first winter, for example, as a juvenile, that's where they'll always come back to, no matter what, pretty much. Um, and so these were the diehard adults that were just coming back to their winter grounds that they'd already always known. But the juveniles, they hadn't settled in a place. They'd yet to choose their final wintering location. And so they were, because it was so mild that autumn, they, um, they, they, just, they just stayed where it seemed mild to them, which happened to be the coast of Scandinavia. And then what happened later that winter? Big uh, cold snap. And there were a lot of dead and dying woodcock and a lot of them made emergency journeys across the North Sea. They weren't prepared for it. Uh, I'm sure there was high mortality. And on the east coast of England, there were huge reports of, of, of enormous numbers of woodcock that were that were struggling in the cold weather. And they'd just come in off the sea. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, this kind of thing, I think we can expect to become more common and it you know, down the line, who knows, it may well end up changing the densities of where woodcock overwinter in Europe if there's any kind of regularity to, to new milder temperatures in the winter. As I say, this is this is all based on just what we observed. Um, I'd love to, you know, collect some proper data on this uh, through multiple years to try and understand how different um, weather conditions in different years actually affect the movement of juveniles compared to adults, but but that was that was something very interesting that I noticed in in that year. Listen, I have a, uh, a question that I ask many times on the podcast. Uh, people who are dealing with birds, and this is to do with ringing, and um, what is your take on 
opinions that you know ringing takes away wildness of the bird that the bird that get caught you know it messes with its brain and uh you know there there are also sort of uh welfare considerations you know that that would call be be considered a uh, exploitation of the birds for for um conservation purposes but still um you know i, I and and we had that conversation when i was over you know like i personally don't like that every photo of a bird you see is a photo of the bird that rings so it's like god damn it they ringed all of them <laughs> right for which you responded like you it is probably bias there that people are photographing birds to see what's on the ring and that's yes. why you see so many ringed birds but overall you know as as a as a naturalist as a person who loves nature loves those birds what is your what is your take on you know where is the balance between you know leaving them alone and messing with them all the time and putting bird you know rings and tags and other things on them I, well, I mean, woodcock, right? Woodcock, like in general, I'm speaking yeah, like in general terms. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, since I'm working in this field and I'm, you know, a ringer and a tiger myself, uh, you know, I know firsthand the value that we get back from this work, and you know, I can. <laughs> I'm also a photographer of birds, um, and so I can fully understand actually, sort of the. Well, I mean, it really is an emotional reaction um, that saying that, you know, it takes away from their wildness. And I get that. Um, and it it might ruin your nice picture when there's a big colored ring on, on a bird's leg. But, you know, <laughs> that's that's that that that's aesthetics. And and there are plenty of unringed birds that I can also photograph. Um, but you know, as I say, there's so much scientific value that comes out of this work. And, uh, you know, in no way is every bird in Ireland ringed. The ringing community uh, in Ireland is very, very small, um, slightly larger in the UK, but still small. And so, you know, it is a very, very tiny proportion of all birds that ever get ringed. And in terms of, you know, welfare, for example, uh, we... Um, you know, we do adhere to very, very strict guidelines as to what we can do, how we do it, um, how we act around the birds. And uh, really, we want to minimize all kinds of um, any kind of mortality or, or morbidity um, associated with ringing, because that, that's not in our interests to do that as well. What we're trying to do is study these birds uh, behaving normally um, and, and try to, you know, understand uh, actual facts about these birds and we can't do that if we uh, uh, conduct ourselves in a way that is going to affect the birds adversely so uh, we are very um, stringently trained as well uh, in all these guidelines and and, and uh, conditions of, of our work um, for example just to say that when we're tagging birds, so the difference between ringing and tagging is that when you're ringing a bird, you put a little metal ring in their leg, as I described, but when you're tagging a bird, you would be putting on something else, for example, a GPS logger to track its movements or a radio transmitter um, so that you can follow it with a radio receiver antenna. Uh, when you're attaching those to birds, uh, we aren't allowed to put on tags that are any more than 3% of a bird's body weight, which is uh, much less than what a bird's body weight would vary by naturally, um, just because it's putting on fat and losing fat naturally. Um, uh, so the effects on the birds aren't nil, but they are negligible and they're, they're small enough so that we can actually get proper scientific valuable data out of it. Okay, that's a, that's a, uh, you know, uh, very sensible approach to the to this uh, issue. Uh, obviously, there are like types of like a, on, I, I saw ducks with a uh, nasal saddles or beak saddles. Mm. And, mm. and there's like I don't think I we're allowed to. Yeah, I don't think we're allowed to put those on in, in Britain and Ireland. Every country has a different um, standard as well to their 
conduct in, uh, in, in bird research. And I, I would say that Britain and Ireland, um, which is the bird research in Britain and Ireland, is all um, under the umbrella uh, of the British Trust for Ornithology. Um, and they have probably the strictest guidelines on bird welfare and, and research in, uh, in the whole world, I'd say. Have you had to go through the like an ethics committee for your for your research or anything like get any approval of you know yes yes ring? Um, yeah so I mean just to start off I had to get all my permits from the BTO in terms of catching ringing and tagging birds and I also had to get permits from the NPWS to be able to do that. And then on top of that, yes, I went through the ethics committee uh, at, at the university who, you know, sort of gave the final go ahead into what I could mm -hmm. do. Is that a chore or was it like a friction? It's just, it's just, it's just paperwork, really. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, like, we, had, we had that, we had that, you know, like we, and I, and I said it to you and I'm going to repeat that, that, you know, part of, part of me, like on one, on one end, it's like, Oh, you know, leave the bird alone. You're putting these tags. You're putting all these things. You know, those poor birds are going with these things, and I don't like it. But then when I hear that the researcher has to go through paperwork and all these committees, then the another part of me is like, just, just get on with it. Just put the goddamn <laughs> tag on the bird, and on, you know, it will work. So I myself have like a very contradicting views on the <laughs> on on this thing. So, but I guess it's always interesting too. To consider at least. Um, listen, James. Here's a uh, we 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 mentioned at the beginning that uh, NRIGC, which is National Association for Regional Game Councils, uh, has a substantial. I don't know if it's substantial, but it has a contribution to this to this project. So I would like to hear uh, how they're contributing to this project. How. Um, how this is uh, going and, you know, do they have vested interest in this or not? Or is it like completely, you know, pro pro bono? And from this, uh, th you know, this is kind of like a loaded question, but I have to ask it, you know, what's your what's your take on uh, hunting the woodcock, right? You love the woodcock. This is fantastic bird. All these things that you already said. And then someone gets a shotgun and blasts it. Uh, right, blast it out of the air, uh, poor bird. Um, you know, for disclosure, I don't have anything personally against uh, shooting woodcock as as long as the, its population is doing okay, which is something that you, I presume, is to your re to your research. But then there's like a small little bird. Let's say, is it even worthy to you know how many you need to get to get a meal? I mean, that's my <laughs> that's my view. I would, you know, uh, I, I am pro hunting, but I wouldn't cry if if we uh, couldn't uh, hunt woodcock. But having said that, I, I understand there is a, some you know history and the tradition attached to hunting woodcock. So uh, yeah, to take it away, I just kind of like open the stage for this <laughs> like a slightly difficult uh, subject. But I'm curious, you know, of the contributions of NRGC uh, to the project and your views on on hunting. Yeah, uh, well, look. NARGC really were the guys who who kicked off the 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 project. They really um, approached UCC from the outset, um, and 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 were, were were asking for this kind of research to be done, which I think is kind of um, unique in an Irish context because not an awful lot of research into into game birds has been done in in Ireland before um, and so uh, you know it's quite progressive and um, yeah basically NRGC uh, is points in my book recently they're <laughs> they're doing a lot of good work now you're saying that that they, that's, that was actually their initiative yeah pretty much um, and you know right through this project they've been extremely supportive um they've been well financially um they've been able to fund a lot of the particularly expensive parts of the research the tags um the the the, the analysis for the um 
for samples that we send off to the lab, etc. Um, and also getting um, a lot of gun clubs involved in contributing to the research, um, sending in feather samples, for example, um, that from birds that they'd shot that we want to get analysed. Uh, and also um, getting volunteers involved in the uh, breeding woodcock surveys that we've conducted as well. So, you know, their 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 contribution has not been small uh, at all. <laughs> and, you know, it's only because of them that this research is able to, to go ahead in the first place. And, you know, you, you mentioned vested interests. Well, of course, their interest in the woodcock, it's, uh, it's a very important hunted species here in Ireland. Um, and I think becoming even more so important, um, because, you know, you know, yourself, the, 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 the state of the Irish countryside over the past few decades has only been getting worse for our birds and not just our birds, our native birds, but released pheasants, for example, um, just swathes of the countryside is not suitable for pheasant anymore and so clubs can be releasing hundreds of pheasants uh, hoping to shoot a few on down the line when the season comes around and and they're just none because either there's nothing in the countryside for them and predators have picked them off or they've had to move somewhere else where they where they can find some food um so you know basically you know there's no hard data to back this up but the you know the the impression among the hunting community in in ireland is that you know as pheasants are becoming more and more scarce and people are getting less return and what they've released the woodcock and other wild game such as the snipe are becoming more important as a hunted species and so you know where <laughs> that comes with a certain responsibility as well to ensure that the hunting of these wild species is sustainable down the line and really uh, you know that's where this research is has, has come into um into play and uh, i love it i love it because you just said exactly what we're saying all the time that you know it's in a hunter's interest to have a thriving and healthy population with with harvestable surplus uh, i know that many people just cringed when I use the word harvest, uh, <laughs> but that kind of uh, moves us to the to the uh, another part of my question, and I'm I'm pretty sure that you can openly and honestly uh, talk about you know what's your deep down right like a deep deep down uh, feelings on uh, you know uh, those those birds being hunted. Yeah, well, look. I'm not a hunter. I've never been a hunter. I'd, you know, I'd maybe be interested in taking up deer stalking at some stage down the line. Um, but I don't think I could ever shoot a bird myself. I am just, <laughs> I like seeing live birds personally. Um, but I think it, I can understand why a person would go out and hunt woodcock during the open season because really, I mean, the majority of, of gun club members in Ireland, um, you know, they treat the woodcock with some reverence. It, you know, a lot of people would find it kind of contradictory that such a bird, they, they go out and hunt it, but they, they also respect it a lot. And, you know, hunters call them, you know, the, the queen of the forest or the king of all game birds. And, and there is a lot of respect for the woodcock in Ireland. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of the um, interest in hunting woodcock is really, number one, about the dog work. And number two, just getting out and, and seeing these birds. If you get a shot at them, then, you know, you're that's a bonus but um even just seeing them and hearing the the flush of their wings and seeing the dog working the hedges is uh is is that's the real reward and uh you know at the end of the day if you if you get one or two for the pot then that's that's just a cherry on top so i can really understand that and to be honest i'm fascinated by the dog work i i'm really really interested in how you know the different breeds approach woodcock in different ways you've got the pointers and the setters which are able to you know find the bird by scent and then and then um 
and then point them. Um, and then probably the most popular uh, uh, breed that you'd use to hunt woodcock would be the Springer Spaniel, which is, you know, very good in the cover. You you send it through and it uh, and it flushes out the bird in a, in a flash. And yet, if you're going to be hope to have a shot at the bird, you have to be quick like that, and you have to have your wits about you. Now, <laughs> as I say, I'm not a hunter. This is all just what I've seen and what I've heard from the hunters that I've been talking to. Um, so no, from that uh, side, you of are it, a, you are a hunter, man. Like you are a hunter. I I saw you in action. <laughs> okay, like hunting. I don't know what is. That's all right. Know. Put it. I don't hunt to kill. Um, uh, so <laughs> there you go. Catch you know, and release, hunter. Catch and release. Um, but I I can totally understand the interest. Um, from that side of things where it is the thrill of the chase and all the work that you put into training your dog and getting out there and and you know I've, i haven't handled the shotgun before but you know i can imagine you need to be a dab hand to shot a woodcock um so but you know again as i say i could never shoot a bird myself um that said i have eaten woodcock and it is very tasty <laughs> and and as you say it's it's a small bird. I would say one woodcock makes one male, um, two breasts and two two legs. Um, and so it's it's a it's 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 not that small. Um, when it gets down to the level of snipe, and even more so jack snipe, that that's when I'd consider whether it was worth um, shooting that in terms of for a male. Um, okay, so I just learned something. I, I I'm looking more in a more accepting eye for the, <laughs> on on the hunting now. Um, that's 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 fantastic. Listen, t- tell us a little bit about the you know where the project is right now, and uh, are there any results that you're uh, able to talk about, or is it all uh, secret until its uh, final submission and, and publication of papers? You know, where so where, where like just give us like where you are right now and. Are there any preliminary results that you can share with us? Yeah. So as I say, it's been a long project. There's been basically three or four years of data collection. Um, I was almost starting from scratch. The, the, the guys who'd been doing the project before me, um, had already collected a little bit of survey data of breeding woodcock. But other than that, yeah, I was pretty much starting from scratch, so there was a lot of work to do, and it's it's not an easy species to work with. Um, it's nocturnal. It's it's um, it's a very secretive species, so you know it needs uh, has some specialist methods and some very strong will to be able to go out on stormy nights and and catch this bird and and You're study like a this shift bird. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, the woodcock shift. Um, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so it has been a lot of uh, a lot of work to get to this point, but we are starting to see some really nice results coming through. I'm currently in the write up of the thesis and in the write up of papers to be published. Uh, we haven't published any papers yet, um, but I mean, basically, a lot of the research is very basic stuff, really, because we don't know very much about the woodcock and its status and its ecology in Ireland. So we have started with the very basics. And a lot of the project was kind of trying to focus on the impacts of hunting on the woodcock, but that's hard to do unless you already know the basics. (laughs) Um, So a lot of it is just finding out basic ecology of, of woodcock in Ireland. So there are really three uh, main elements to um, to this project so far. The number one is the breeding um, uh, uh, surveys, where we um, we over the course of three different years, and I should say that COVID happened in the middle of this project, which really put a spanner in the works in, in some ways. So look, <laughs> we did what we could, but um, I have to say that it was it, it, it worked fairly well anyway. But yes, we got volunteers to go out and survey for displaying male woodcock in the breeding season. So what happened there was um, volunteers who, by the way, I should say, um, came from all walks of life. Um, they were NARGC members. They were hunters, shooters, gun club members. Uh, they were Birdwatch Ireland members. They were 
other folks at the university. They were just general members of the public. I pushed it hard on social media and, um, you know, all kinds of people went out and, and surveyed for Woodcock. And I'm very, very grateful for everyone who did because every site surveyed across the country added another bit of knowledge to, to, to the project. Um, and, I, you know, I have to say particular thanks to, um, to the NRGC. Uh, to to the NPWS and to Birdwatch Ireland and to to the Northern Irish organisations B2 in Northern Ireland and RSPB for pushing uh, pushing <laughs> the word about doing these surveys as well. Uh, and so people go out and survey these these displaying male woodcock. Now displaying male woodcock probably presents the best opportunity to see a woodcock. As I say, they're very very secretive birds, so they stay hidden in the forest most of the day, but in the evening. Um, male woodcock want to display themselves to the females. They want to advertise themselves to the females. So about 20 minutes past sunset in May and June. Well, more than that. Um, from about now, actually, um, mid-March through to mid-July, you get the males begin to display. And as I say, 20 minutes after sunset, they suddenly appear in the sky above the forest and they fly these great big circuits across the trees. Um, they cover a huge area and they have this very interesting way of flying where it's like a, a double wing beat and uh, flickering wings. And they fly with their head cocked up quite high and their beak pointing down and their legs dangling. So they're very distinctive. You can't mistake them for anything else. And they have this distinctive call that they repeat every few seconds. And uh, it's it's like a, a series of grunts and then a little squeak. So they go, and it's uh, you know once you know that sound, you won't mistake it for anything else. And um, so basically, from the counts, you're able to then um, work out a rough density of how many males you have say within the the kilometer squared around where you did the survey um and so we took everyone's survey results um there were plenty of people who didn't see any woodcock on their survey and uh you know um I'm, again i'm very grateful to those people who went out on multiple nights um through the season and <laughs> uh endured biting midges and uh and um <laughs> other insects and, and mosquitoes in the forest in the evening and uh, didn't see any woodcock and still reported the results for me because those negative um, surveys are almost just as important as the surveys which did see woodcock. And um, and then from that data, I was able to build a species distribution model which allowed me to estimate where in Ireland you get breeding woodcock, what kind of densities you get, um, and an overall population estimate, and also what factors drive that population. So we found that climate was really quite an important one. And there's a bit of speculation as to why climate is so important for the distribution of woodcock in Ireland. Um, nothing solid on that yet, but it came out as a very important um, factor, as well as that habitat, obviously. The more forest habitat you got, the more likely you were going to find <laughs> woodcock. Yeah. And so those, so those displaying woodcocks, these are yes. these are residents. Those are the residents. Yes, those are the residents. So they're when they're displaying, they're then bred females and then females. So the same thing, I guess, is happening in Russia or somewhere. Yes, and then they're bred females, and then females migrate to lay eggs and raise chicks. Some after migration. Um, no, well the the. The displaying woodcock that we that were seen as part of the survey here in Ireland, um, they were displaying to females, which then would be nesting here in Ireland and raising chicks in Ireland. Okay, so they're not migrating to raise uh, chicks; no. they're migrating just to find the food and all these things. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. Um, uh, woodcock migrate away. The migratory woodcock migrate away uh, in mid March to April, and they. They go over to Russia or Scandinavia and they do all that displaying and raising of chicks over there. 
When can we expect uh, you know the final results and some papers published? I would love to uh, put the the link to those papers in my newsletter. So hint hint, folks, subscribe to Tommy's Outdoors <laughs> newsletter. Uh, we'll be you know stay in touch on uh, on this research. Do you have any um, time frame? That uh, hopefully, mind? hopefully, uh, you know, get them submitted later this year and and you know, published as soon as, as we can after that. Um, I'd like to see them out this year, 2022. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's, there's some nice, there's a whole lot more to, 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 than I've described. <laughs> um, yeah, like we so, said, we could probably, probably spend uh, six hours talking about Woodcock and the three. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I didn't even get into the, <laughs> to the GPS tagging and some of the incredible secrets that we've, uh, uh, um, discovered about how they use the Irish landscape in the winter. Um, <laughs> you know what? I think that once you're once you have a papers out, we should do this again. Yes, and, and on you know just just uh, do more because I I bet you there's going to be huge interest in in this episode and everything that we said. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's just do it again. Absolutely, uh, I'm up for it again. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> I'm picking up on that. So folks, uh, you know, subscribe to Tommy Seldor's podcast, whatever you're listening to that podcast on Spotify or Apple, leave five-star rating for the Woodcock and subscribe to the newsletter. James, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. It's been great to talk. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave me five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This is great help for me and for the podcast. And while you're already there, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show.